AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Stan, I hear you have a story about a piece of Android malware. Yes, uh, Karen, you know actually how much I love malware. I guess love to hate malware or love to analyze it. Uh, so this piece of malware caught my attention. Um, it was reported by security researchers at Bitdefender, and they did actually a pretty amazing write-up. It's like 58 pages long. Uh, for anyone who likes malware, that's like an acceptable length for a great write-up. And it goes into a lot of detail exa about exactly how the piece of malware works. But the reason I found it interesting is because, um, according to the researchers, this is a piece of malware that has been kind of in the shadows for about four years uh, before being so publicly uh, discussed. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot about Android malware in general. So we've got like Anubis and other pieces of uh, Android malware. But this one in particular um, was uh, kind of hidden from public view or from researchers' view, um, at least according to the, to the Bitdefender researchers. I'm always actually interested uh, what, why malware gets its naming convention. So this malware has been named Mandrake. Um, and the reason is, is because when the researchers uh, were kind of like analyzing it, they noticed that, you know, over four years, there's been a lot of releases, actually. So the developer of the malware has been uh, changing the naming convention and things, uh, uh, sorry, has been uh, uh, putting new features in. Uh, and uh, uh, they named their development branches. You know, how, like you have Android, like Marshmallow or Oreo or KitKat or something. Uh, so the malware authors, they have uh, humorous names as well, uh, but they go after botanical references. Um, so uh, the researchers at Bitdefender decided to name this uh, malware Mandrake because of that. It's also, you might hear it in a different context and people might refer to this is Phoenix, uh, and the reason for that is because the word Phoenix is, um, if you look at the malware source code a little bit, you'll notice references to Phoenix as well. Uh, so malware, like any other, uh, it gets on your phone. How? Probably targeted um, phishing is, uh, or like you know targeted delivery is what they're talking about. Possible through like maybe some kind of like yeah like phishing attempts or social engineering attempts. It's not exactly clear, um, but um, the way that the malware operates is interesting. It's actually composed of three stages, and the first stage is just what they call like a dropper. So this dropper is, it doesn't really have much functionality um, in terms of malware functionality, um, and the malware functionality will only be downloaded and installed after your phone passes a check. So the adversary knows that they're giving the malware to the intended victim, so to speak, or to a device and not like a virtual analysis environment. And there's actually like other layers uh, in there uh, to facilitate the payload. Um, and this thing can like, you know, do anything you can do on your phone, like look at your um, SMS messages, like look at your phone calls, block some, um, exfiltrate information. And there's even a kill switch to wipe the contents of your phone completely uh, so that maybe if you became suspicious or uh, the adversary wanted to maybe cause some issues for you, you know, they can completely wipe the thing. And then it could do other clever things like uh, basically inject into web pages that you have open uh, to trick you into maybe revealing credentials that you shouldn't. All right, now the fun part. Uh, the command and control um, is uh, hard-coded plus some DGA in there. But the way that the Bitdefender researchers were able to do their analysis is that the adversary, they had a couple of domains um, that were hard-coded in the 
um, in the malware, and they forgot to register one of the domains. So the security researchers at Bitdefender, they registered the domain, they wanted to see like how many clients would connect to it. But the thing about this malware is it uses um, like SSL uh, validation, SSL certificate validation or verification. So you would need to have the private key um, on the C2 server in order for the client to communicate with you. Uh, but as it turns out, the malware authors also made a mistake in um, their implementation and they kept the private key um, within the APK file. So the security researchers were able to monitor this botnet uh, by basically setting up a, a C2 point, and then they were able to see um, and have um, different victims communicate with them. And so they were able to measure a little bit more about um, the types of victims uh, that were part of this. Um, one thing uh, I guess uh, you know I recommend to anyone who's interested in the space or wants to know more of the technical details is definitely uh, check out this white paper. It's really interesting if you're if you like reverse engineering or if you like understanding how some of these campaigns work or how to do this kind of analysis. Um, uh, go ahead and check it out. It's got a lot of uh, very intricate detail about exactly how the malware works. I definitely didn't do it justice, but you know, there were a couple of these um, interesting observations that I wanted to kind of highlight. Yeah, what's really interesting, <clears throat> I thought, was that um, the malware was really, really selective in what devices it would actually infect and manifest on, right? I mean, it exempted entire nations. Didn't really go after them, former Soviet Union countries, predominantly Arabic speaking nations. And so it really seemed to be, you know, focused on a financially motivated campaign that was looking to distribute and infect on high value endpoints by definition of that, that threat actor group, right? Like, you know, ones that actually had valuable data that could be used to gain credentials for people that had maybe, you know, large portfolios of assets and things along those lines. So, um, very interesting that it uh, was so selective. Yes, and uh, you know the other thing I, I I think was notable is again that their dropping mechanism that makes sure that they'll only deliver the later stages to the victims, just like you said, uh, with it being so targeted. Yeah, I really thought that was interesting because then you you weren't playing a game with numbers, right? Which I I think we're used to to that scenario where you're just gonna infect, you know, gazillions of machines as much as you can. And it was a really very different approach, which I, maybe there is other malware that does that, but I had not heard of that. Um, usually it's a numbers game. Yeah, for large botnets, definitely. And especially with like the phishing attacks we see on a weekly basis uh, in like these large scale, um, you know, spam campaigns, uh, it definitely is a game of numbers. And, and you're right, Karen, this one is, seems to be uh, much more uh, tuned in uh, to the high value targets, possibly ones like Mike mentioned that maybe have more assets to steal. Um, so the adversaries, uh, I guess, don't waste their time. <laughs> yeah, and maybe also that they wouldn't get caught as much because it wouldn't have been spread as, so I think it was actually quite clever. Um, it's a very interesting approach, although, as you said, the, the code was quite complicated. Um, yes. So the different components that have been written into it. I also found their use of social media to be interesting, um, how they had various microsites, Facebook pages, YouTube sites, things like that associated with the different applications, which were as posted to the Play Store, you know, fully functional applications that were not inherently 
um, malicious in and of themselves is that dropper stage. Um, and that, you know, they were using that, you know, social proof concept to drive adoption and downloads of the, um, you know, dropper infected uh, applications uh, to their targets. Yeah, that's a very good point that I forgot to highlight. Uh, and you're right, because, you know, these days we do tend to trust like reviews before a pro you buy a product or something like that. You're looking at the reviews, how many stars did it get or something like that. And having uh, the, the, these apps have like a little bit of a public profile kind of semi-legitimizes them. Hey Mike, I hear you have an interesting story about TrickBot today. I'm uh, actually very interested about it because I've been doing a lot of analysis on it, so interested to hear what, what the story is about. Yeah, TrickBot's an interesting one. I mean, it's been around for a really long time, right? It's one of those, you know, stalwarts of the banking Trojan community, which is uh, kind of continued to evolve over time and adopt new functions and features and, you know, additional malicious behavior over time, you know. It steals all kinds of different credentials. It is able to, you know, look for Active Directory credentials. It steals cookies, SSH keys, you know, all kinds of things. And it's even, you know, been used um, to deploy other malware packages, you know, such as, you know, ransomware like Ryak, uh, in order to, you know, continue to monetize its operations. It's recently um, been upgraded, um, you know, yet again. Uh, to include a new kind of more stealthier um, propagation method that's particularly damaging and targeted for Windows networks. So previously, um, when TrickBot uh, was deployed into a network and it found itself to be operating inside of a Windows environment, it would use a couple of modules uh, to propagate in that environment. And one of them was called mWorm. Um, which would start looking at exploitation of various uh, SMB-related um, vulnerabilities to propagate through the environment, infect domain controllers, and the like. Um, but recently, um, some analysts um, found that there were some new mo a new module that had been included in at least a sample that they had obtained, which was called NWORM. And this one has some, some notable changes from its pre predecessor, MWORM in that when it starts to deploy inside of the environment, it will actually deploy um, to the servers inside of the environment in an encrypted fashion. Previously, TrickBot would actually spread itself in an unencrypted manner so that when that unencrypted malware hit the domain controller, if that domain controller had anti-malware solutions resident upon it, it would be able to detect and quarantine that file immediately upon upload. Um, this new version, however, encrypts the binary before it tra transmits it to the host, and it actually has the ability to detonate and infect the machine in memory, so it doesn't actually write to disk any longer. Um, so these things combine to make it a stealthier infection um, module associated with TrickBot than it has been in the past. And particularly for domain controllers and servers, the malware is foregoing the typical methods of trying to establish persistence, right, which is often done through, um, you know, registry objects or, you know, adding things to the startup menu and things like that. This, in, in this new module, it's actually foregoing uh, persistence at all. 
Uh, it's actually banking on the idea that servers are very rarely ever rebooted. And so just being initially on the box and infecting the machine is good enough uh, for their purposes at this time. And these things combined make it very um, difficult to detect, um, especially in those uh, domain controller environments. It's actually kind of scary because I think a lot of times TrickBot gets in, in its initial foothold on your network, maybe through uh, like um, spam attacks or something. Mm -hmm. Like there's a Word document you click on, Mm -hmm. um, and you get tricked to install this malware. But this idea that it'll automatically spread to other machines in your network who weren't part of the original attack, it, it is actually very scary. Um, and the fact that the adversaries are like thinking about that, um, you know, I mean, we know that um, like APT groups and people like that, like on the manual basis, you know, they will spread through your network, uh, but this kind of like automated infection uh, for the purpose of, you know, um, you know, stealing your financial data or propagating in your network automatically by some of these criminal groups, it's kind of scary. I think it represents a big um, evolutionary step uh, in this type of threat. Um, yeah very dangerous um, so I think it's this is a threat that's I think very like you said it's 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 a it's well known it's been studied for a while but it continues to evolve it continues to have new modules and people um, really do need to take it seriously because um, it does steal a lot of personal information VPN credentials um, SSH passwords SSH keys it also steals anything that you have in your like browser for safe passwords. And a lot of um, organizations uh, do tend to be victimized who don't have mature security programs. Um, so it's definitely important to be on the lookout for this threat. And it's very difficult to get rid of. Um, very difficult to get rid of. Yes. Yeah, some of these, you know, I noticed I, studying malware for a while, some of these like criminal type malware kits are actually harder to get rid of than the APT uh, malware kits uh, that I've studied in the past. Um, I don't know what it is uh, about it, but these do, you're right, they do tend to stick around. They inject themselves into areas uh, in a way that is, is really hard to take them back out again. Um, I guess the only thing we can hope for is that uh, rebooting the server, because they didn't add the persistence for the servers, maybe rebooting the server will take care of the infection. But, you know, the, the truth is that's not so simple because if you have, you know, with that module, if you have one PC with it, you're pretty much going to continue experiencing reinfections. I think that's what we've yeah. seen. We've seen with, like, WannaCry and things like that, right? If you have, like, even one vulnerable PC on in the environment, you know, it's going to continue trying to propagate. And anytime you bring in a new PC, it's, it's all, you know, everything is at risk always. Do you have any sense of how, uh, how many um, versions of TrickBot have this new module? Did they talk about that? Because there's see, so many uh, different data. versions out there, right? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of the challenge when you start talking about malware, a lot of it is tailored, uh, much of it is targeted to try, you know, and avoid, you know, signature detection and things along those lines. Um, but some of these um, types of, you know, evolutionary modules do kind of tend to make it into those broader um, code forks, if you will. Um, I didn't see any particular information about the prevalence. Um, um, it may have been buried elsewhere in the report that I didn't get to, but uh, I'm afraid I don't have an answer for that. I guess from my understanding of TrickBot, uh, it's like Mike said, it's been around for so long and there are many versions of it. And it's, it's a very, 
it's actually a very plug and uh, pluggable uh, framework. Uh, so adversaries create new modules all the time to steal credentials from different locations or to spread in different ways. Um, and I think there are, I don't know how many, I can't say because I don't know also, uh, but I, I guess, you know, dozens, if not, uh, you know, hundreds of different plugins. Um, there's certainly hundreds of different commands uh, that, you know, can be transmitted. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a very dangerous and persistent threat. So, Karen, I understand that uh, there are some firms that are willing to uh, hack on your behalf. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a story, actually, that came out of the Google Tag Report, which is the threat analysis group in, in Google, and it was really focused on the WHO. So, what, um, what was happening, obviously, in the time of COVID-19, um, that there were some Gmail accounts that were created that were targeting, again, we were talking about very specific targeting of these phishing campaigns against, uh, for business leaders in healthcare, business and consulting, um, and uh, trying to get them to sign up for uh, alerts from the WHO. And uh, you had to put in your credentials, obviously, your phone number, things like that. Um, and Google uh, reached out to somewhere around 1,200 business executives who had been targeted by this campaign and obviously had, had some malware if they had complied. Uh, the idea was is that they had um, done that. And again, you know, we're talking about something that was, you know, quite specific. Um, and targeted at these specific uh, business leaders. Again, it's just these come up uh, on a regular basis. I think we talk about them on Threat Track from time to time that people are using whatever the news is of the day to kind of uh, find something that's interesting uh, that somebody would feel like they need to get access to. And uh, obviously the WHO being at kind of the center of this global campaign. Um, they, again, were targeting particular countries. We talked about that earlier, um, but uh, it was a, a global campaign, but uh, obviously a lot of attention in the United States. And, um, and uh, they were obviously pretty uh, successful. And these were some particular business leaders who uh, were infected because of this, um, this phishing campaign um, that was, uh, it was based in India. Uh, targeting uh, COVID-19. So, you know, again, I think the message is, like we always say, is, you know, don't click on anything that you're not 100% sure of. It's interesting, like the pandemic has caused such a, a large amount of activity in the threat community, um, you know, that's predicated upon, you know, those types of lures and using that as a pretext for attacks. And there's a lot of uh, campaigns that are being run even at the state sponsored level um, around, you know, trying to obtain, you know, access into networks that might have research data or health data around uh, the coronavirus and related treatments. Because there's a lot of um, not only financial um, windfall potentially for whatever nation or organization, you know, brings, you know, a cure or a treatment to the table, uh, but there's also a lot of, um, you know, kind of geopolitical um, capital, I suppose you would say, uh, associated with that. And I was seeing that, you know, some of the threat actor groups um, associated with 
uh, Iran, you know, been tagged with that, you know, particularly Charming Kitten. Uh, and then what I saw, found particularly interesting about this story uh, was that the Dark Hotel APT group um, has been even getting in on the game a little bit, uh, which is um, not traditionally something that uh, I would have associated with that particular APT group. Well, I think they have to spread out because probably people are not staying at hotels as much. So there's probably <laughs> so they're kind of looking for a new job. Uh, so they're probably like expanding their horizons, which is actually dangerous uh, because they are formidable kind of adversary, and for them to enter a new space, I, I, maybe I'm uh, just thinking out loud. You know, maybe that's not the real reason, uh, but it certainly is plausible. Um, One other thing about this, they did say that also part of this that they were trying to break into the WHO itself because obviously. Um, their countries are sharing information who are participating in the WHO, and uh, it's a, maybe an easy target for them to get information. Uh, so WHO itself has been uh, has has uh, been the target. They did not say that they had been successful, but the target of several APTs. Yeah, you know, it's a shame uh, that in these kinds of situations of crisis, it seems that. The adversaries, you know, they kind of use it to their advantage and exploit, you know, on unfortunate circumstances for some kind of a gain. Um, and I think, you know, for social engineering, they're quite successful because I think a lot of people still trying to figure out what's going on or they're not really sure or there's not like necessarily a prescribed procedure. So the only procedure you have for is to be just vigilant and uh, kind of have your tinfoil hat on for different threats that might be targeting you. And I think people just have to be aware that they are targets, you know, there's these threats that are out there. They're, they're real and they, they could be coming after you. And, you know, when you get unsolicited emails or texts or cold calls, you just have to be very careful how you respond or how much information you give up. Um, and it's usually, I, I find it better to reveal less about yourself or what you're trying to do uh, than more just to say, stay secure. Hey everyone, I have the internet weather for this week and I'd like to start with our uh, top 10 most pro ports report. So as you know, we're always measuring um, activity on the internet as it relates to different cyber threats. And one of the best way to measure um, different cyber threats is to look at uh, port scanning activity to really understand um, what, are, what do adversaries um, seem to be interested in uh, today or this week, and how is that different from last week? So this report uh, kind of breaks down the common ports uh, that are being scanned for, um, and uh, it's ranked here uh, by volume of scanning activity. So uh, there's no surprises here on this chart. Uh, it's things that we see every week. Um, you know, obviously Telnet is something that uh, everyone is interested in. There's a lot of scanning on that. Uh, there's SMB, ICMP, Backscatter, SQL. Uh, port 80, SSH, you know, all normal things. And, and even 8545 TCP, um, you know, I decided to talk about it um, this week because uh, I haven't covered it for a while. We have covered it in the past um, on Threat Track, um, but I just want to give you a little bit of an update of what that activity looks like um, this week. Um, so before I do that, I just want to show you another way to look at scanning activity is by the number of IP addresses uh, kind of concurrently scanning all at once. Um, and we study this uh, in order to understand is there any um, botnet behavior or bot-like behavior out there? Uh, what are 
um, you know, adversaries interested in um, from um, uh, you know service perspective. So we have um, uh, at the top spot here uh, 445 TCP, which is SMB file share. It's related to a variety of vulnerabilities over the years. And the fact that there is thousands of IP addresses scanning for this port every hour um, is no surprise. You know, we cover that again every week on the internet weather. And really, as you look at this list, there's not many changes. These are all ports we've looked at before. Uh, so without further ado, I want to kind of show you uh, the latest on the activity against 8545 CCP. Uh, so here I have for you uh, on the top is the number of probes. Uh, that is, um, you know, how, how many uh, scan flows uh, there are against this port. Um, these are in millions, so you could see that there's between you know, 50 or 70 million um, uh, flows per hour um, that are being um, um, observed. Uh, and then if you look at how many IP addresses are engaging in this, there's actually not a lot. So if you look carefully here, you'll notice that um, there's um, the baseline here is like uh, 25 or so IP addresses generally um, per hour that are doing this with some uh, areas where it'll be like maybe 400 or 500 IP addresses all at once. So. For those of us um, who probably you know might have forgotten what is port 8545 TCP, I always kind of like to go and look at uh, both our honeypot and uh, I guess just Google and you know searching for this port and understanding what it is. Um, now we have covered this before, but this is basically Ethereum. Um, so Ethereum is a cryptocurrency. People, um, it's actually there's a wallet that goes along with it to keep track of your um, it's, you know, your cryptocurrency, and uh, it, it opens up port 8545 TCP. And if you're not careful and you expose that to the internet, adversaries might actually be able to connect to you and then potentially steal your Ethereum uh, locked, you know, cryptocurrency. Um, and so this is what's happening. So there's this group that's been doing it already for years. You know, this article, some of these articles are from 2017. Um, uh, so you could see that basically, you know, the activity has been going on for at least three or more years. Um, and, uh, you know, there's at least some adversaries looking for these um, and possibly trying to steal uh, cryptocurrency. So uh, just looking at this, as always, and with, as with any of the ports, it's important to understand um, your exposure of your services on the internet. Um, you might decide to make sure you know you like scanning externally against your IP address space, or using services that probably already collect this information, just to understand uh, you know if you are having firewall rules that maybe you didn't intend to have. Um, and uh, this is just one example of something that can go wrong and how you could uh, uh, potentially lose your cryptocurrency. Uh, I, I don't know if you can say hard-earned cryptocurrency, uh, but definitely mm -hmm. the, uh, the bits and bytes of your PC uh, had, to, had to compute <laughs> and crunch. Um, so uh, I think that's it for the Internet Weather this week, and uh, uh, hope you enjoyed the update. So who do you call when your cryptocurrency is stolen, Stan? Is that an FBI thing? Or? Uh, that is interesting. Yeah, I don't know who you call. May, uh, definitely not Ghostbusters. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I think for crimes, um, 
of where you know crosses federal boundaries or and things like that on the internet actually fbi is probably the most appropriate place uh, for reporting internet crimes uh, in general so if you have been victimized um, i think if you go to the fbi.gov website there are uh, links and references there uh, that will take you to um, you know proper locations to file a report. I know FCC as well for communications. They also have um, uh, like a scam reporting uh, um, portion of their site where you can go and report any kind of scams. A lot of it is if you've gotten like a call on the phone uh, where they tell you, hey, you know, we're offering you some service. So FCC takes those, but they'll take cybercrime like this as well. Um, and I think even AT&T uh, has a link where they have all these resources available at the att.com site uh, in the customer uh, section. So, uh, there is an interesting point, Stan. I think that, you know, if you have cryptocurrency, uh, you know, it behooves you especially, like we all talk about security, but this is like another level of uh, security. And for whatever reason that you decide to keep your wealth in cryptocurrency, that, uh, you know, obviously not opening yourself up to scanning. I think that's a very important uh, point because, you know, with hard currency, we're all, like, we all understand you got to hide it. You don't want to like walk around with your money showing out of your pockets. I think everyone knows that. At least you should put it in your wallet. Uh, but most people know you got to take it to a bank where it'll be secure. Um, you know, you you know, you don't you put it onto your mattress wherever. Uh, but with cryptocurrency, I think you're right. Most people didn't don't understand like the hygiene that you have to have in order to properly protect yourself. Is there a bank for cryptocurrency? You know, uh, and a lot of it is because it's such a I mean, it's been around for a few years now, but relatively new as a medium for uh, currency. Uh, you know, how do you protect yourself? Uh, and it's really a personal responsibility, I think, for most people. You know, to f to find out how to secure yourself. How does the technology work? Uh, where is your money stored? Uh, who can take it and who can basically steal it? Uh, because you definitely don't want to be, um, you know, a victim of something like this, where you think you have a you know, like a nest egg, and then you suddenly become victimized. Well, ultimately, I think that's going to drive some interesting, interesting developments um, in the end user community space, because while some people are going to, you know, take action to be personally responsible and learn how to secure uh, their own local area network, I, I, I don't see that being the, the majority of people. Uh, I think that really what Things like this, if you start to see broad adoption at the consumer level uh, of cryptocurrency as a legitimate monetary uh, resource, that you're going to start to see some solutions come to market that are going to, you know, purport to be turnkey security solutions for home networks uh, to take that burden of responsibility off of comparatively non-technical end users. You know, I really am looking forward to that time because actually it, it's related to all computing. Um, I even think about my own home network and uh, how everyone has become uh, like a network administrator all of a sudden, which, you know, in everybody's home network, they have probably, you know, definitely dozens of devices. I think maybe, you know, some people might even have hundreds of devices without realizing it, and they all have to be managed and protected. And I think you're right. For most people, it's not going to be like an easy thing to do. Um, and I am looking for the time when enterprise-grade solutions are available more at the consumer level. Uh, so, you know, regular people like 
you and me, uh, you know, at home can protect ourselves uh, where we don't have like a huge team of uh, you know, different analysts and layers of security. So, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I just had to buy a new dishwasher, and I was surprised that it wasn't internet enabled. Thank God. <laughs> because when I bought a washing machine a few years ago, literally, it was internet enabled. For what reason, I have no idea. But, you know, what, it's just one if, more device that could, right. It's, uh, so I'm so happy that I asked the guy. It doesn't, it isn't internet enabled. It's, he said, why would your dishwasher be internet enabled? And I said, exactly. So. Um, <laughs> Well, what if you're sitting on the couch and you just don't want to get off the place to go wash a button, or <laughs> and the, but you probably have your phone with you, um, uh, or something like that, something like that. Um, but you know, you're right. Having too many devices that don't really have a reason for having, um, you know, like internet connectivity, actually have it. Uh, could represent a danger on your home network. You know, those devices can also become compromised. And, um, you, know, it, you know, even the story Mike talked about earlier with uh, TrickBot, you know, I'm, I, I know their TrickBot is like spreading to servers and things in an automated fashion via SMB, but I'm actually worried about the day when, tr you know, threats like TrickBot will spread to your IoT devices at home or infect your TV and use that as a, like a reflector because, there's no way you can install AV on your like TV really realistically. So, um, you know, those are, those are the scary times ahead of us. Now I'm a doomsday sayer. Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys. Uh, I think some great conversation here out of the internet weather. Um, and I think definitely uh, every time I look at the top 10 ports that are being targeted, it kind of, causes me to rethink, uh, you know, the security of even my own personal home network and um, what I have exposed on the internet and making sure uh, that, you know, there's no ports open even on my modem or my router at home. Um, so. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.